coming in and going out all the time. And so I will take half the second to introduce myself. Um, my name is Jim Kluth. I started worshiping here at Berean Community in 1995. And I've had the privilege of being involved in the body in many, many different ways. And so just delighted to be able to share the word with you this morning. Um, before I do that, I want to give a little report from the Berean Fellowship Convention that we attended um, in late July, I think July 22nd through 24th or something like that. It was a three-day convention in Broken Bow, Nebraska. And just just the sound of a name like Broken Bow tells you that there's not going to be more than 5,000 people there, and you're right. There's not. It's about 3,500. Uh, but we we made the journey out there, and so did lots of other Berean pastors and leaders and significantly involved people in their congregations. Uh, and we had a wonderful time. It ended up being about 180 adults and then about 60 youth and children involved in convention. Um, the theme for the convention was Get Real. <clears throat> and uh, the plenary sessions, the sessions where the main speaker speaks, uh, were focused on passages from Second Corinthians. And so we heard four sessions from President Scott Mathis, and then one from evangelism trainer David Kaufman, and one from a veteran pastor John Wetzig, six, six sessions from Second Corinthians. Um, and, of course, there were numerous breakout sessions and workshops and all kinds of great food and fellowship and opportunities to be out on your own. And if that wasn't good enough, they also provided us on Monday with yellow convention T-shirts, which I believe the purpose of the T-shirt was to teach us humility. Yeah. It's amazing how many people you could see kind of ducking their heads a little bit when they put on the yellow t-shirt, like, I really have to wear the yellow t-shirt. <clears throat> President Scott Mathis among them. Um, but I thought, I, I actually dug for the shirt. I said, Tara, where's the shirt? Where's the shirt? And she thought, there, 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 there. So, got a shirt. Um, anyway. So, free and fellowship convention, and uh, we get to host it next year. We we get to be the host congregation, and you got to realize that's a significant commitment for all the Nebraskans, all the Coloradans, all the Californians, all the South Dakotans, and all the Oregonians. I don't know if we have any in Oregon or not to come this far east uh, and be with us. So be in prayer for that, and uh, just look look forward to that. It'll be about the same time next year. Um, I did want to tell you a highlight from the convention for me. There were several of them. But one of them that was significant is there's a congregation in a little town called Alma, Nebraska. I would have said Alma, but they say Alma. Uh, and they have they've had a, a church there for a while. And the church got to know about the Berean Fellowship. And then um, I was part of connecting them to the Berean Fellowship. And this is the very first convention that they were able to attend. So their entire elder team came on Monday of convention, which included Pastor Larry Dubay, whom I had the privilege of talking with for pretty much at length, uh, 
and then some young elders. They had a couple of guys, maybe maybe in their 20s and 30s, uh, another guy upper middle age, and then a 90-year-old elder who had been part of that congregation for 65 years came up for a convention and worshipped and got teaching with us. So it was really, really, really wonderful time and, and something that I have been praying for and to see God bring that together in that affiliation. So it's a good time of spiritual refreshment and connection for us. Um, I'm taking you to the Old Testament for the next couple of weeks. Um, we're going to be going to the little tiny book of Haggai. And uh, Haggai has two chapters. And if you're not familiar with finding Haggai, because really who is, um, just find Matthew and then flip back 10 or 15 pages and you'll, you would get Haggai. All right, so it's very close to the end of the Old Testament. And I need to set some context for you before I go into the actual words of Scripture. So you'll remember that way back at the time of David, and Solomon, there's a united kingdom. All of Israel is one kingdom, the 12 tribes doing the 12 tribes thing, go united kingdom, right? And then David's life ends, and Solomon, his son, becomes king, and the kingdom remains united through Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple that the Lord wanted established there. And then, after Solomon, things from the kingdom perspective begin to fall apart, right? And the kingdom breaks into the northern ten tribes of Israel and the southern two tribes, which we call Judah, later on. Um, the northern ten tribes, it's a rough go up there. They, they have idolatry running rampant. Um, if you read through the history of the kings of Israel, there's not a one of them that receives commendation by the writers of scripture. Um, and so the, the northern kingdom, it's really a mess until the Assyrians come in in 722 BC and they wipe out the northern kingdom. They carry off numerous people, numerous Israelites, I suppose, that would have been living there. And then they bring in their own conquered people and say, intermarry. And so they do. And the result of the intermarriage is what we call Samaritans. And you know the the Jews and the Samaritans, and they really, really did not like each other much at all. All right, that's the that's the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, the southern two tribes hang on quite a bit longer in world history, and partly that has to do with the quality of their leadership. So the the southern two tribes have about one third good kings and about two thirds bad kings, and they hang on until 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and they begin to carry people off, and that's what you probably, you're probably familiar with, the Babylonian captivity or the exile or whatever. Uh, and so that's that event. And people between 605 and 586 B.C., the Jews are deported, um, especially the significant ones, the ones that the Babylonians would have had some value on. Um, and so this this is the time of Daniel, right? Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and all those guys. Uh, and they're in Babylon. But remember, God had given the promise that 70 years later, the Babylonian captivity would be over. They'd be in exile for 70 years. 
and then he would allow a remnant to return to their homeland, Jerusalem. And so God is good for his word. And so they begin to do that. And after 70 years, the captives start returning because, see, Cyrus the Great issued a decree in 538 B.C., um, and it allowed these conquered peoples to begin to repopulate their homelands. And, of course, the first job that they should have when they came home, 538 B.C., was to reestablish true worship of God. And so they try to do that. 538 B.C., they begin the work of rebuilding the temple, and then life happens, right? And then... Um, well, there were a whole bunch of issues, and we'll get into those a little more deeply. But part of it was Samaritan opposition. They began the rebuilding of the temple, and the the peoples around who had intermarried from the Assyrian invasion come in, and they say, hey, you know, we worship the same God you worship. And so could we just not, can we build with you? And the Jews see right through this, and they realize this this is a false attempt at fellowship. And they say, no, you have no part in this. Cyrus the Great gave us the decree to rebuild this. And they don't say this outright, but basically we don't trust your heart. right? And so then as soon as, as soon as that's revealed, it turns out that the Samaritans really were against them and they begin, begin showing different kinds of opposition. All right, and that takes us to Haggai chapter 1. Let's pray as we consider the word. Father, we thank you that it is your word that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that each one of us who calls you Lord and Savior may be equipped for every good work. So we ask that as we open the word this morning that you would provide light to our eyes, comfort to our hearts, and encouragement to our minds. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you, yourselves, to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. <clears throat> you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. 
I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of, I'm sorry, Mr. Wine, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. So, we already talked about the context, what, the, what was leading into this. Now remember, they'd gotten back in 538 BC, and they'd gotten a start on this, and then the opposition and everything begins to pull in. And so verse 1-2, chapter 1, verse 2 comes out of that. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. That was their opinion. Now you think about that. Why would they say that? How would you feel if you had nowhere to come together with other believers and nowhere to share and learn and grow and so forth? Um, I can tell you I'd be pretty distressed, right? But why would they say that? Well, partly because they had established lives in Babylon. Now remember, a bunch of them had been gone for 70 years or more at this point, and God had actually told them, if you want to flip to Jeremiah 29, just back up a little bit, Jeremiah 29, God had actually told them to establish lives there in Babylon. I'm at 29.4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what he tells them to do. Right? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Right? So settling in and connecting there in Babylon, was part of God's plan for his exiled people, but now he's bringing them back, and he's calling them to return to Jerusalem. So established lives may have been an issue. Um, the opposition that I already talked about from the Samaritans, I'm sure, was a huge issue. If you want more detail on that, you can read Ezra chapter 4, and it'll talk about that. Um, they may have struggled from lack of funding. It may have been an unfunded mandate, so to speak. Um, and then the one that just struck me is in our human desires, in our selfishness, um, sometimes we want to take care of our own affairs before we take care of kingdom affairs. And, you know, the earliest of the repatriates had been back only 18 years. And some of us here can tell you that 18 years goes a lot faster than you think. So here they are in 520 B.C. And the challenge from the Lord is delivered through Haggai. Look at verse 4. 
verse 4, he says, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Well, the obvious answer there is no. And then the question comes up to people, so is God against paneled houses? Well, no. The testimony of the scripture does not bear that out. God has no issues with paneling in houses. So what is God communicating here? First thing is that he wants to be your absolute number one priority above all other things. And the condition of his temple in Jerusalem demonstrated that their priorities and their hearts were elsewhere, right? They were willing to leave the temple in a ruin while they worked on the paneling and the detailing inside of their own homes. And he calls them out for that. He says, you're showing what your true priority is. So uh, the temple is the place where God chose to have connection with his people in the Old Testament. Tim did a nice job of kind of summing up the story of humanity when he was up here earlier, right, is we begin with the perfect fellowship, sin and death, um, enter the picture and destroy the unity that the original people that Adam and Eve had with God. Uh, and now, as as we come forward to the time of the temple, God's given his people a place where they can connect with him, right? a place to worship, a place to know who the true God is and how they can be in right relationship with him. Um, and for most of them, for, I should say for the oldest of them, that would have been Solomon's temple, built 964 B.C., and then um, destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Then there's 70-ish years um, when there is no temple. And therefore, the physical demonstration of God's presence isn't in their midst. And the point is, that should have bothered them a great deal, to be without a point of contact, a formal communal point of contact with the true and living God should have bothered them a great deal, but it didn't. It didn't bother them enough to do something about it. And so we get into consequences. If you look at verses 5 through 11, there are consequences to their inaction. Right? This is the part where God says, give careful thought to your ways. And then there's a whole series of contrasts, right? You've planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. The NIV, <laughs> the NIV translates that kind of gently. The, the, real, the real force of that verse is you drink, but you never feel drunk. So the, nothing that they were trying to accomplish was really getting there, right? was really... Uh, in completeness. And so these disciplines are in place. God's limiting their success because they've forgotten him as their first priority. And these examples of discipline are really a comment on the sovereignty of God. Only a sovereign God can guarantee that you're going to have a smaller harvest. Only a sovereign God can guarantee that you put on clothes but don't feel warm. And I got to thinking about this issue of sovereignty and 
you know, if if God is not good, then sovereignty is a terrible thing. To think of a being that holds your entire life and your entire experience in the palm of his hand, if he's not good, you are in big trouble. But the overwhelming, consistent testimony of Scripture is that God is good, that he is the anchor of all moral goodness, and that because of his love and his mercy and his care, so sovereignty is actually a wonderful and beautiful thing for you and for me. And so God is not harming them, but he's recalling them to the best life possible. The most wonderful thing that God can give you is relationship with himself. And so he's not damaging them. He's not harming them. He's giving them enough of a wake-up so that they realize we're lacking relationship with our true and living God. And we need to be pulled back to that. So how will this relationship take place? Well, in the Old Covenant, it'll take place through temple worship. That's what God had established. That was the meeting point. That was where his glory and his presence would reside. And so they needed that point of connection and realized that when the temple is restored, then the people take their identity from him. Now, that's not a thought that jumps right out in that passage, but that's really what's happening is he's saying to the people, folks, you're identifying with all kinds of other things that are not me, right? Your identity is in your paneled houses. Your identity is in your sports chariot. Your identity is in how beautiful your wife is. Your identity is in how fantastic your children are. Your identity is in how wonderfully your crops are growing. But I really want your ultimate identity to be in me because you're not going to be fulfilled and I'm not going to be glorified and God deserves all the glory because he is the greatest and best of all. And so unless unless we glorify him, unless we have our identity in him, we do not fulfill our purpose. So they have consequences. And then there's specific instruction. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, he says, Go up into the mountains and bring down the timber and build the house, so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Go up into the mountains. Um, if there was any doubt that this was delivered in Jerusalem, that doubt is gone now. Because the geography around Babylon doesn't support that. The geography around Jerusalem does support that. So if you were wondering, is Haggai actually in Jerusalem? Yes, he's in Jerusalem. Um, there's rugged hills around Jerusalem, and then farther and farther away, there's the actual mountain things like mountains. So just go up, get the timber, and God will take pleasure in the house that they built. And that was a place for me to pause again. God will take pleasure in it. Pleasure in what? Um, Well, I don't think it can particularly be the wood and the stone because God has an awful lot of wood and an awful lot of stone. Um, I think the delight is more in the sacrifice of obedience that comes from the praise of his people. Working together in faith and in community, they are going to rebuild God's temple. They're going to glorify him. 
that got me to thinking about a little incident um, from the lives of my own children. Most of you know I have a significant number of children. I think it's four. So, um, and I garden, and I never have time to keep up with the weeds in the garden. And so I asked my younger two a couple of weeks ago, I asked Toby and Avery, I said, come on out to the garden with me, and oh, would you look, there's a row of lima beans. And there's another row of lima beans. We are going to have a little contest. So, Toby, this row is yours, and you're going to weed this row, and you're going to have it done by 5 p.m. And Avery, this row is yours, and you're going to have your row done by 5 p.m. And whoever wins the weeding contest, the winner, you get $3. And a loser, you get $1.50. All right, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a win-win for everybody, right? And they get to weeding, and I go and do whatever it is I do during the day. And then I came home, and 4.35 o'clock, I go out to the garden. I take Toby and Avery with me. And it turns out that they've both done a magnificent job of weeding this, their two rows. Because you know weeding involves two things. One, get rid of the weed. Two, make sure the actual plant stays in place. And, and they've done quite well. Their rows are fairly clean and most of the plants are still up. Uh, and so I had a terrible time deciding who was actually going to win the contest of the lima bean rows. And by the way, I have three rows of lima beans and lima beans are almost ripe. So if you want lima beans, you come see me after church. All right. Um, this incident was a little bit about lima beans, but it was more about seeing what my children would do with the opportunity to obey. Right. I gave them a task and I gave them a whole day to do something about the task. And so I was really seeing what kind of connection, what kind of obedience, what kind of blessing Toby and Avery were going to bring into my life. Well, it turns out that they brought quite a bit, and I was overjoyed. And I think that's similar to the experience that God had here in Haggai chapter 1 when the people returned to building his house. And that is our last major thought from the text. If you're going to look at uh, verse or chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, all right, I warn you, something strange is about to happen. Let's look. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people of Israel obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. I have read a significant amount of Old Testament. Okay. The people of Israel are not very good at obeying the Lord their God. In fact, the, the whole of the Old Testament has many, many more failures in it than it does successes. And so this stands out as a joyful example of what happens when God gives an instruction and then we follow through on it. Um, the, the people obeyed him. And so it becomes a much happier story. And um, sometimes we get going on something. 
we make a good start on it, and then we get discouraged. And you'll see that there's encouragement for them. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Is that not the simplest word that God has ever given? I am with you. That's all he said. I am with you. And that gave them the courage to go and to do. And the whole issue of encouragement is huge in the lives of people. I think a bunch of you know that I spent the first half of 2017 writing a play about the life of Martin Luther. And so the, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is coming up this fall, and I wanted something good for, for our drama program to do at Schaefer. So I wrote a play. And when you're just an ordinary person writing a play about theology, one of the things you do is you take it to a group of pastors and let them hack it and see how it went. So I did this. <clears throat> I went to this thing. There's a group of about 10 pastors that meets on Fridays, and it's called the Faithfulness Gathering. Uh, and I, I brought them the play. They had a chance to read it ahead of time. And eight of them really liked it. One of them was kind of mediocre towards it. And one of them spent an hour and a half flaming me in front of the other nine pastors. And it was quite an experience to have had, let me tell you. Uh, and after that was over, I, I couldn't pick up the play for quite a number of weeks because I just didn't want to deal with hacking through all of those criticisms, right? I just let the things that because I know I have enough time, and I know the Lord will restore my heart on the matter, and it'll be all right. But um, I let the thing sit for a while. And then two of the other ten pastors called me and said, we're sorry about what happened here with our brother and our colleague, and we hope you won't take anything from that. And I said, no, no, it's good. And I appreciate your encouragement, right? I appreciate your letting me know that things are going. And here's the point that ties back to our text, right? In 1.13, the Lord gives the simplest message of encouragement possible. He just lets them know I'm with you. And that basic encouragement, you're on the right team. You're headed toward the right basket. That basic encouragement is what they need to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And so Zerubbabel and the returned exiles have the courage and the stamina that they need to commence rebuilding what would be known as Zerubbabel's temple. It took them four years to rebuild the thing, 520 B.C. to 516 B.C. But Zerubbabel's temple was in use from 516 B.C., all the way, almost until the time of Jesus Christ. So, it's a good project. Um, I don't know if you like to take notes or not, but let me give you four thoughts in closing, four applications that I got out of this passage. For number one, I would write down the word priority. And then just take that time and ask yourself the question, 
Is God your number one priority? Is he the thing that drives you in the morning? Is he the joy of your heart? Is he the strengthening of your character? Is he the hope that you have for tomorrow? And if I ask myself those same four or five questions that I just asked you, I'm going to get kind of a bumpy ride. You know, sometimes, yes, he really is my first and greatest priority. And other times I let other things step in front of him. And we all need to be honest about that. And we need to repent when that's happened and ask him to make himself the center of who we are and what we're doing. And, and I think of Jesus's too. When, when they asked him about the greatest commands, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And those, those two things talk about the priority of God and then the priority of other people. So, um, so number one, priority. Number two, identity. And we've already talked about this, but that's, that's what God wants for them. He wants them to be so rooted in Him that they don't go looking for their identity and all the other stuff. And you know, sometime, I'll preach a message about vocation and about being in this world, not of this world. And you're going to see that we are to be involved in stuff. Okay? That this world is not our home, but it's also not something for us to check out of. And so, uh, but we've got to have our identity grounded in him or we will not be effective in growing the kingdom. Third, obedience. They actually obeyed. And we have a much better opportunity to obey than they did is we have the Holy Spirit, right? If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, his spirit is alive in you, and his spirit is always moving you towards love of God and love of neighbor. His spirit commits you to obedience, and so you have a much better opportunity than the folks living under the old covenant to uh, walk humbly with your God. And then the last thing, last point I've had a couple of times, is God's people need encouragement. And he's designed us that we would be encouraged, both by the word, and the reading and the studying of the scripture, and by relationship with other people in the body of Christ. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a quick tiny example from this morning. I was trapped in my row over there, right? There's there's my family, right? And my wife and my brother-in-law. And there's Seth and Beth, right? And I had to sneak past Seth and Beth to get up to you this morning. And just as I was leaving, I felt Beth pat me on the shoulder, like, go get them. And wow, was that helpful, right? If there was, if there was the grain of self-doubt in that moment, it just went, we're out of the way because somebody over there believes that I can do this. Human encouragement is one thing. God's encouragement is ultimate, but he uses us to encourage one another. And so we need to be active in that. All right. So that, my friends, is the story of Haggai chapter one. And I encourage you to come back next week because we're going to worship together again, and Lord willing, I'm going to teach through Haggai chapter 2, and we'll get the rest of the story. So uh, why don't you pray with me? Father, we're grateful that you've given us your word, 
that we may learn about who you are and that we may experience you in our lives. Lord, each of us has relatives and friends who are not walking with you, and we can see the consequences of that playing out in their lives. And so I ask, Father, as we consider this passage, that you would help us to delight in you. Uh, You would help us to have our identity grounded in you. And you would help us to obey. And I further ask, Lord, that as we approach your table here, that we we would be um, just awed by the fact that Almighty God would give himself for us. Lord, it's, it's all about you, and it's in a very limited way, much less about us. So I ask it in Jesus' name.